I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Mutants. Since the beginning of their franchise, they have been regarded with love, excitement, and sometimes hatred. Across the planet, debates rage about which films in the franchise are superior, and which were unnecessary. Which directors actually had a unique vision that would honor the source material, and which of them were simply there to fight for their time in the spotlight? Either way, it's an historical fact. Being honorable has never been Hollywood's defining attribute. The X-Men universe is one of the most successful film franchises of all time, ranking 8th overall, and 4th in the superhero world behind Batman, Spider-Man, and the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. X-Men comics spawned 12 films, counting the Wolverine and Deadpool movies, with a 13th arriving, eventually, in the form of the New Mutants. X-Men also had a tremendously successful cartoon in the 90s, which was surprisingly true to its source material. But you can't mention the success of a franchise without examining its flaws, and 2006's X-Men The Last Stand was an obvious flaw for characters, story, emotion, and timeline throughout the films. And yet it's also one of the highest grossing X-Men movies. Being the follow-up to the superior X2 X-Men United, The Last Stand was meant to be the end of a trilogy of films and the end of a franchise. And yet filmmakers spent future movies trying to retcon the decisions and the events of the movie. How did it end up being a disappointment to fans and filmmakers alike? Join us as we jump into Cerebro, narrow down and discover just what the f*** happened to this movie. Right off the bat, The Last Stand takes us 20 years into the past to show us a de-aged Ian McKellen, who, if we're honest, looks like a video game character, and Patrick Stewart, who looks like, well, let's be fair, Patrick Stewart from the 90s. The aughts, the present-day Patrick Stewart, because the man has aged less than Paul Rudd. The two characters are on their way to visit a young Jean Grey, who is just learning how powerful she can truly be, introducing us to probably one of the most successful comic storylines of all time, Dark Phoenix. Sometimes split into two sagas, the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga, Jean Grey's exposure, absorption, and eventual corruption to the Phoenix Force spanned the X-Men comics from 1976 to 1980. It is one of the most popular story arcs in the history of comics, and for good reason. More on that later. The question raised 20 years ago... We are like you. Really? I doubt that. Fans will remember catching a glimmer of this in X2, and it sets up the introduction to the extremely popular Phoenix storyline in the X-Men movies. But then, surprisingly, before we're taken back to present day, we see plot point number two. Yes, plot point number two, the studio's plot point. The point that would make the Dark Phoenix story a little less dark. To be fair, this movie will spawn as many plot points as possible to keep things from becoming too much like the comic. Here we see Angel, one of the original X-Men from the comics, finally being introduced in the films, but as a young boy discovering that he's a mutant and trying to hide it from his father, who will go on to discover and develop a cure to the mutant gene. Yes, a cure. This storyline was ripped straight from the pages of Joss Whedon's gifted story arc in the astonishing X-Men comic series, and it serves a few purposes for our story. First, it creates conflict among the X-Men, as some see it as offensive, and others are genuinely tempted to change their lives with it. Second, it motivates Magneto, who is incensed by the cure, and wants to end those that have developed it. And lastly, it takes the focus away from the Phoenix storyline. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would they make a Phoenix movie but take the focus away from Phoenix? 
And that would be a great question, one that had audiences scratching their heads once they left theaters. Unfortunately, the answer goes back to that age-old story of studios interfering in the creative process. You see, when the Dark Phoenix Saga was introduced to fans in 1976, there were plenty of female characters in comics at the time. Wonder Woman was one of the mainstays in DC Comics, whereas Marvel had the likes of Susan Storm from the Fantastic Four and the Wasp, who was with the Avengers. But these female heroes tended to be more humane in their approach to conflict. Jean Grey certainly was as a member of the X-Men, but with the Dark Phoenix Saga, Grey was transformed into something very different, the most powerful force in the universe. To sum up, the X-Men were in space doing, you know, superhero space things, and were traveling back to Earth. During re-entry, Jean Grey absorbed a solar flare that unlocked and unleashed her full abilities. This made her not only extremely powerful, more powerful than any other mutant, but also extremely dangerous. Jean bottles up these powers with psychic barriers to keep them under control. In a fight with the Hellfire Club, she uses the power of the Phoenix and inadvertently breaks the barriers controlling the Force. She's then instantly all consumed with her powers, and she ultimately becomes the Dark Phoenix. After nearly killing all the X-Men, she then retreats into space and, feeling a little famished, consumes an entire star, which then destroys a solar system and ends the existence of four billion living beings. A little less heroish and kind of villainous, no? The Shi'ar, after the planetary devastation and the destruction of one of their own ships, capture Jean Grey and the X-Men and make them battle the Shi'ar Imperial Guard for Jean's life. The X-Men fight hard, but ultimately lose. Jean is once again transformed into the Phoenix and unleashes hell on the battlefield. Professor Xavier psychically tells the X-Men to stop her, and Jean herself even begs the X-Men to kill her. In her last human act, she makes the decision herself. Jean enters a machine made by the Shi'ar and blows herself up to save her friends. She sacrifices herself to prevent further carnage, a lesson some current superheroes could stand to learn. There's so much packed into that story that changed comics from that point forward. For starters, Marvel's female heroes hadn't hit their best days yet. Sure, they changed the game by having a woman on each of their three major teams, but their purpose beyond being a crush for the male teammates was minimal. But now, not only was a female front and center, but she was the most powerful being in existence. Gender roles aside, the premise of the arc itself had not yet been explored. What if a hero became so corrupted by their own power that they turned into the most terrifying villain ever known? Those elements would have been great to explore in a superhero movie, but unfortunately, they never were, or at least not to the satisfaction of fans. When we look back, we don't generally see the first two X-Men movies, directed by Bryan Singer, as certifiable masterpieces, but they did usher in a new era of comic book films. In the decade before, the most successful superhero films were undoubtedly the Batman series. Things started off a little gothic, with Tim Burton at the helm. Then Joel Schumacher made things a little more... well... With the introduction of the X-Men films in the year 2000, superhero movies started to become a little more grounded. There were uniforms, sure, but they weren't flashy, they were tactical. The motivations for each character felt more personal. Watch that film and its follow-up X2 X-Men United, and you'll clearly see the blueprint laid out for future big-screen comic adaptations. X2 especially found a way to combine many of the more popular mutants and share their screen time in a way that felt satisfactory, with each getting their own dedicated moment to shine. And the writing in the sequel seems better than the first film. Then we move on to what would have been the third leg of a trilogy, with the same director and cast, except Singer decided to leave the project. Warner Brothers had seen how the director built a franchise with the X-Men, and they approached him with an offer to helm a new Superman movie. 
Singer jumped at the idea and left the mutants behind. With Fox unwilling to simply wait around, the search for a new director was underway. Many names were tossed around for the chair, such as Darren Aronofsky and Joss Whedon, both of whom turned down the job. Matthew Vaughn was quickly hired after being suggested by Singer himself, but he dropped out deep into pre-production because he felt the film was too rushed to meet its deadline. It's okay, he'd get another crack of the franchise someday. Vaughn ultimately wasn't sure he could deliver a film worthy of the standard that fans would want to see, given such a short amount of time. So what director do you hire when you're in a rush? Brett Ratner stepped in to direct the movie for Fox. Best known at the time for the successful Rush Hour films, Ratner saw no issue with the deadline at all and gladly accepted the job. Unfortunately, that deadline led to more than a few rewrites. For starters, Matthew Vaughn had completed quite a bit for the film before dropping out of the production. He was quoted as saying, I storyboarded the whole bloody film, did the script. They didn't let the emotions and the drama play in that film. It just became wall-to-wall -wall noise and drama. A good example of that was the Golden Gate Bridge scene, which was originally envisioned as the centerpiece for the film. Magneto would break Mystique out of prison in Alcatraz, then use the bridge to transport her to safety. The climax of the film was meant to take place in Washington, D.C., where Worthington Labs was originally set. There, the Mutant Brotherhood would destroy the cure, then take control of the White House right down the road. Those were all separate sections of the story that Ratner decided to combine into one scene. The bridge, Alcatraz, Worthington Labs, even Wolverine's face-off with the Phoenix. On many big movies, the original screenwriter is usually brushed aside during filming, but Zack Penn and Simon Kinberg, who each wrote drafts before Vaughn came aboard, were both involved all the way through filming, as they tried to assemble something coherent over the course of production. The deadline also created scheduling conflicts with the talent, which is why you see reduced roles for Rebecca Romaine's Mystique and Anna Paquin's Rogue. James Marsden easily got the short end of the stick after he followed his friend Brian Singer for a role in Superman Returns, which limited the amount of time he could spend on The Last Stand. So what do you do when a main character of past films can only be in a portion of the new film? You kill him, of course. Cyclops, the leader of the X-Men from the beginning of the comics, cartoons, and films, probably the most popular X-Man outside of Wolverine, is just killed off. To make things worse, it didn't even happen on screen. As he discovers Jean Grey, who now has the Phoenix Force flowing through her, the two embrace and kiss. His skin starts to crawl, and then... that's it. The audience doesn't even witness the end of one of their favorite heroes as he dies off-screen. James Marsden clocked in around four minutes of screen time for this sequel. And worse still, after all that, his death served no purpose. Jean had a fleeting moment of regret. Wolverine brought it up briefly, and that was it. It affected no one's emotions, it motivated no one and the characters simply moved on to the next part of the story. Ratner, however, was proactive in terms of casting, seeking up-and-coming or unexpected talent for some of the more exciting roles. Kelsey Grammer was hired to play Hank McCoy, aka Beast, who had been hinted at in X2. His performance was described as nostalgic, reminding fans of Beast from the X-Men cartoon in the 1990s. Ben Foster was cast as Angel, which he got into ridiculous shape for, and Ellen Page was brought on for the role of Kitty Pride. Ratner offered her the part after being floored by her performance in 2005's Hard Candy. At first, Paige declined the part, but Ratner was persistent and she eventually agreed to take it, a decision she would later regret. In a post she made to Facebook in November of 2017, Paige detailed a situation that took place at a cast meeting, where Ratner suggested to another woman in the room that she have sex with Paige, to quote, make her realize that she's gay. Paige was 18 at the time of the incident, and wouldn't come out as gay for another nine years. 
When the comment was made, she simply looked down at her feet. Paige claimed she felt violated by the statement and that no one in the cast, including herself, spoke up when it happened. It wouldn't be the first or last time that Brett Ratner was accused of such behavior, as several other allegations of inappropriate behavior and sexual misconduct were thrown at him. Brian Singer would speak up in defense of Ratner, though he himself has also been accused of sexual assault. Anyway, back to the point at hand. Where the first two X-Men movies focused on character development and emotion, Ratner wanted to focus more on action, which The Last Stand has plenty of. But while we're on the subject of characters being done dirty, what the fuck happened to Charles Xavier in this film? No longer a wise and loving mentor, The Last Stand sees Xavier shout at members of the team, talk down to them, and even send people to their deaths. He knew what happened at Alkali Lake, and he sent two of his team, two of his friends, to go get their dead team leader and the most dangerous force on Earth. She evaporates people, Charles. Come on! While the movie lacks almost any type of emotion, the argument can be made that the death of Professor X is probably the most emotionally resonant moment in the film. They allowed some time for reactions from characters, with many not fully recovering from the event even by the end of the film. But that's sort of the point here. For every moment that worked, there's a whole litany of questionable ones. Like the many moments of fan service that backfired. Halle Berry, who played Storm in the first two movies, had wanted her character to fly like she did in the comics and in the cartoons. She said in an interview with Total Film, I've worn this cape for two movies and I wanted to put it to use. After two movies, her feet had still not left the ground, but Ratner promised her flight in this film, feeling that it was what the fans truly wanted to see from that character. Unfortunately, what Ratner envisioned for Storm was more like a tornado. As badly as she wanted it, Barry wasn't prepared for the wired stunts that she had to endure for the film, and she was said to have projectile vomited frequently as a result. There was even a bucket on set, dubbed Halley's Bucket, that was specifically for her stunt scenes. When the X-Men are introduced in the sequel, they're seen fighting a sentinel robot, which immediately excited fans. They were also immediately let down seconds later, when it was revealed to be just a simulation, a huge action sequence that ended up being meaningless overall. Then, of course, you have appearances by mutants that serve little to no purpose, an Iceman pyro elemental fight, and who could forget... I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! And yet, this was exactly what the studio wanted. It was the era of Sam Raimi's crowd-pleasing Spider-Man trilogy and the Fantastic Four movies. Studios didn't want mainstream superhero flicks to go too dark. They wanted to keep a family-friendly tone. After all, this was a year before The Dark Knight was released, so studios weren't too familiar with what boundaries could be pushed. It's also worth mentioning that female-fronted superhero movies weren't exactly popular at the time. Movies like Elektra, which disappointed fans, and Catwoman, which disappointed the world, meant that a focus on a female hero wasn't really an option. A year after The Last Stand, Spider-Man 3 hit theaters, and a year after that, audiences were treated to Iron Man and The Dark Knight. In a lot of ways, The Last Stand could be viewed as the old way of doing things. At the time of its release, X-Men The Last Stand was the most expensive movie ever made. Not the most expensive X-Men movie, or the most expensive superhero movie most expensive movie. It boasted a budget of $210 million. The film was released in North America on May 26, 2006, into almost 4,000 theaters, and opened internationally the same weekend. It broke the Memorial Day domestic box office record, bringing in a whopping $102 million in its opening weekend. While it also did well overseas, grossing $76 million that weekend, it was beaten by The Da Vinci Code, and all of its records were crushed about six weeks later with the release of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. 
The Last Stand eventually grossed $459 million worldwide, and it remained the highest-grossing film in the X-Men franchise until it was defeated eight years later by Days of Future Past. CinemaScore, which measures audience reaction, gave the film an A-. However, critic scores on Rotten Tomatoes gave the film an average of 57%. Roger Ebert enjoyed the film, stating, I liked the action, I liked the absurdity, I liked the incongruous use and misuse of mutant powers, and I especially liked the way it introduces all of those political issues and lets them fight it out with the special effects. Other critics weren't so kind. Variety's Justin Chang claimed the film was a wham-bam sequel, noticeably lacking in the pop gravitas, moody atmospherics, and emotional weight that made the first two Marvel comic book adaptations so rousingly successful. To this day, the film is widely criticized by fans for the deaths of favorites like Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Professor X. When asked about the film, writer Simon Kinberg said, There are a lot of things about X3 that I love, and there are a lot of things that I regret. He claimed he would have preferred the Phoenix storyline to have taken center stage, but admitted that the overall darkness of the Phoenix saga was a huge gamble for a film that had such a massive budget, which was another contributing factor to the many rewrites. In fact, while we're on the topic, three of the harshest critics of The Last Stand were Matthew Vaughn, Brian Singer, and Simon Kinberg, all of whom would later have a shot at bringing a chapter to the franchise to life. Vaughn directed 2011's X-Men First Class, which is the second lowest grossing film in the franchise, but one of the most critically acclaimed. Singer came back to direct 2014's X-Men Days of Future Past, which received the most praise from critics and remains the highest grossing entry in the franchise. Many fans see Days of Future Past as the real third installment of the franchise, as opposed to Ratner's The Last Stand, and Singer was seemingly fine with that. When IGN asked the director if the movie was a chance to revisit some moments from The Last Stand that he'd like to see changed, Singer responded saying, There's going to be a little of that. There are a few things I can repair. Finally, Simon Kinberg got a chance to correct those regrets of not making the Phoenix storyline the main plot when he made his featured directing debut with 2019's Dark Phoenix. But that is definitely a what-the-fuck-happened story for another time. Since superhero films started debuting to major success with X-Men in 2000, moving to Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy through the Batman pinnacle and eventually landing with the modern-day MCU, it's worth noting that X-Men The Last Stand is one of the most hated installments in the superhero genre, at least among fans, which Brett Ratner was not okay with. He was happy with what he had made and actually saw himself as the one who saved the X-Men films. In an interview with Star Pulse, Ratner pushed back at the claim that his film hurt the series, stating, If I buried the franchise, how the fuck did they make a Wolverine movie? Mine kept the franchise alive. Every single person that wrote shit went to see that movie multiple times because a movie doesn't just gross that much money unless people go to see it more than once. Ultimately, what we got with The Last Stand now seems like a pointless entry in the X-Men saga. While it's not alone, and there are certainly others we'd like to forget, there are more that we wish to remember for how astonishing they truly are. In the end, they may be forgotten in the shadow of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe will do with mutants. It's just that X-Men The Last Stand might be forgotten a little quicker.